Well, hello, ladies and gents, Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I've got special repeat guest Stephen Hussey on the line. This guy is so incredibly smart, so incredibly intelligent. I've had him on the podcast a few times in the past. Every single time I step away from the conversation, just so much better for it. This episode dives deep into the heart and fourth phase water, something that we touched on briefly in our last podcast, but we kind of dive deeper into it on this one. He's got a new book coming out talking all about the heart, heart disease, uh, heart failure, what may or may not be the cause of such things. And I'm telling you, it's just, it's, it's going to take the world by storm because it, the heart in his eyes is not just the pump that we've made it allowed to be. I've learned a ton. I have no doubt that you will as well. Without further ado, sit back, relax, get your notepad ready, and enjoy the conversation with Stephen Hussey. Steve, we're live, man. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing wonderfully well, man. So I've had you on a podcast, I think twice, I want to say. This will be the third time. And in each time yeah. you've been on the show, like it's it's been one of the, the most educational episodes I've ever had. Like I, I come away from these conversations just blown away at your depth of knowledge on whatever given topic it is we're talking about. So I'm super excited <laughs> to learn something today. So let's, let's roll up our sleeves and dive in, man. Cool. Yeah. You've got uh, a book coming good. out. Talk about that. Yeah, so um, I, I uh, this is my second book. Um, the first one was all about, you know, um, I guess evolution and you know the the underlying reason why we have chronic disease and everything. And and so I got a lot of questions I think from people about you know how does what I talked about in that book um, relate to specific chronic diseases? You know how does how does it create those or how do those result from the imbalances we talked about in the first book? And so you know rather than you know, discuss all chronic diseases, which would be a huge task and probably too much for readers. Um, I focused in on heart disease, which is kind of my passion and interest um, because of my health history. And so I wrote this book about everything that I've learned about the heart. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not a cardiac researcher or anything like that. It's just something that I've been interested in for a long time. And I hope that uh, it can just open up discussion about some of the misunderstandings I think that we have about the heart and its function and um, the the true causes of heart disease. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's lots we could dive into. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of this book. I'd say more proud than the last book, even though I'm proud of both. Um, but I'm excited to release this one. Totally, man. You should be. You should be proud. Um, so I definitely encourage anybody that hadn't listened to the prior episodes, definitely go back and listen to that. But just to kind of give them a little context, you kind of want to touch on a little bit of your history and why you were so motivated to, to dive into research on the heart in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I always suffered from chronic diseases as a kid, uh, very inflammatory in nature, um, all kinds of uh, asthma and allergies. And uh, I used to break out in chronic hives and stuff like that. And eventually ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes and, you know, you know, going to doctor's offices, um, through uh, treating type one diabetes or learning how to manage it, I'd say. Um, I learned that, you know, I was predisposed to heart disease, you know, two to four times increased risk. And so I've just spent a lot of time figuring out how to not let that happen. Um, and so I realized that there was a lot of misinformation and the more and more I uncovered about heart disease, um, the more I, I figured out that we were, we were focusing on the wrong things. Um, and I, I even think that, um, 
we've misunderstood what the purpose of the heart is um, and why it is where it is and things like that. And so, um, yeah, it's just kind of uncovering one thing after another um, uh, from, from that, uh, you know, this passion that I had for preventing heart disease in myself. Uh, and I just felt, I guess, compelled enough to, to share that because I think that it's important. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where this book came from. Totally agree, man. Do you ever, before, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of what all you've learned, do you ever fear like, like people won't take what you're saying as seriously because you, you're not a cardiologist, you don't have that acronym behind your name, or you just focused on getting the information out there and, and kind of letting people do with it as they will? Um, yeah, I mean, funny you should ask that because just yesterday, there's this Facebook group that I was invited to be part of. Um, um, I think it's, um, oh man, I can't remember the name of it. It's about, they, they, they're, uh, they're talking about coronary artery calcification and, and atherosclerosis and things like that. And so I was invited to be part of that group and just contribute what I could or whatever. And I posted like a little, uh, uh, little thing about my book, upcoming book with a little quote in it, you know, from the book and the guy who runs that group, you know, reposted it onto that group. And somebody in the group was like, this person's totally unqualified. You know, there's, he's a chiropractor and he's got a, a master's in nutrition. Like he's not qualified to write a book on the heart. And, you know, I, I, I don't fear that stuff. I, I know it's going to happen. There's going to, there's people that live in that kind of world where it's very black and white, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's nothing I can do about it. It doesn't really um, offend me. It kind of makes me sad because they're going to miss out on the information. I think that would help them. Um, but it may not. Uh, so I don't really fear it, but I know it's going to happen. Um, and I just, you know, it, it kind of makes me sad that that's the the approach to the world that some people have or the, or the view of the world. Some people have that, that people without, you know, a degree in something can have an opinion about it. Um, I think that's um, kind of short-sighted and uh, doesn't really move us forward. And one thing that I talk about in the book is that um, if you look I'm in no way comparing myself to the great thinkers, you know, throughout science. But if you look at a lot of the great thinkers in science in, in the past and history, um, you know, very few of them were, you know, formally trained in, you know, what they're most known for as far as their scientific discoveries, you know. Um, and my book is on not on their level whatsoever. But I just feel like how um, how less advanced uh, in our knowledge would be if all the great scientists of the past um stayed in their lane you know uh this is something that interests me it's not my it's not my job um it's something i did because i was passionate about it and i and i um looked at it deep enough and spent enough time on it that i actually wrote a whole book about it um and that doesn't mean that 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 makes all the information right but it does mean that i was determined to find the truth um and you know, my truth or what I perceive as the truth about these issues is, is in this book. And I think that I would be interested in that if it was somebody else, you know, like if it was somebody else's passion and they found their truth, um, I'd be curious what it was. And that's what I think it is. That's all it is. Completely agree, man. I mean, I look at, you know, just society in general, and I feel like all the movers and shakers out there that are truly passionate about any given topic are the reasons that so much advancements and innovations yeah, are made in those genres. I mean, it's just like when you're whenever you're truly passionate about anything and you just it get excited the deeper you dig. I mean, so many people just do the bare minimum to kind of get a passing grade or get to the next tier or whatever, but when you're just unbelievably passionate about anything, like you seek out 
you know, the cutting edge information. And whenever that's the case, the the content you put forth is just unparalleled. So, I, I mean, I would argue to say that, you know, you being as passionate about the subject matter as you are makes you even more credible. Of course, you don't have an acronym on the back of your name to back it up, but I feel like the passion speaks for itself. Yeah, and I and I, I've, I feel that way, you know, and, and when I'm seeking out information, I want to know more about the person giving me the information than the information itself, you know. Um, or at least how they, how they interpret the information. Like if someone's writing a book about something, um, it's, I want to see that, you know, they weren't doing a profit. They were doing it as something that interests them. It affected their life, and they want to share it with the world because they thought that it was interesting and they would help the world, you know. 100%, man. All right, well, let's let's roll up our sleeves and dive in, man. So how do you think, for the listener's sake, would be the best way to, to just dive into this and kind of structure it? I, mean, I guess we can kind of follow a similar structure to how you've laid out the book and just kind of do it in an audio format? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right, man. I'm going to let you take the wheel on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I started out, um, like the, the first part one um, is kind of this uh, journey through the history of, of the earth, um, but it's only focused on a few certain things. And, and those things and the evolutionary path of life um, help us understand, think, what goes wrong when someone, uh, you know, gets heart disease or gets sick in general. I mean, really, the book's about heart disease, but, you know, this, the same things that cause heart disease. So you can, you can apply these principles and these, um, um, I guess, recommendations, health recommendations to all chronic disease. Um, and so I start out in kind of this big timeline. We start out, you know, at the beginning of life and we talk about, you know, how cells, you know, um, dependent on oxygen and how that, you know, spawned like mitochondria and these bacteria that went into the cells because mitochondria are very important for heart health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we go into, um, you know, kind of a, how we go from, um, mammals or we go from reptiles to mammals and how our response changed um during that time uh and that's very important because the stress response that we have into in the modern day is uh, very linked to uh what can cause uh, heart disease um, but more specifically heart attacks uh, so there was this big shift between or this this um big change this evolutionary change that had to happen for reptiles to evolve in mammals um, because of how the physiology is, um, we had to have a, we, I say we as a, almost, um, had to have, uh, a stress response that would not, um, shut down our bodies because, you know, reptiles can have a stress response where literally you can shut down because they're cold blooded. Um, and, and mammals can't do that because they're warm blooded. They're very metabolically active. And if an organ shuts down to that extent because of a stress response, then bad things can happen. Uh, very bad things, um, all the way up into death, but organ failure is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to evolve that. And so learning about that, that evolution of that is important for, um, understanding, I guess, um, how stress can affect our health heart so much. Um, and then we go into, you know, the evolution of the first humans and looking at the, the diets of the first humans and even um, the the pre uh, the hominids before that, um, and how much of a meat heavy diet it was, and we talked about how um, it doesn't make sense that you know a diet that um, made us who we are as as humans is one that is killing us today. 
know how cholesterol and red meat is blamed for heart disease and saturated fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that go into that. And then that's kind of my big introduction. Oh, and then I go into um, kind of where we went wrong in the 1950s and 60s um, about this theory of, of heart disease um, and, uh, and what, uh, you know, what Ansel Keys did in his research and all that kind of stuff and, and how the mainstream narrative became that saturated fat and cholesterol causes heart disease, even when the research at that time that was coming out did not suggest that at all, um, which is very interesting. And a a much more in-depth, you know, in the Ty Schultz book, um, Big Fat Surprise, but um, that's just, you know, one chapter in my book where it's her whole book. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I I go, and so like, that's the big introduction and kind of leads us up to how we got to where we are today. But then I like to take all that information learning about you know, this history of, of life and evolution and show how um, some of the main um, diseases of the heart or malfunctions of the heart can be explained. Um, and the first one I talk about is, is heart failure. Then there's the, in part two, I kind of go into um, kind of the main, uh, I guess, malfunctions or, or issues with the cardiovascular system that can happen. Um, so the first one I talk about um, well, first I explain how, you know, we, th- people think of the heart as this pressure propulsion pump that pumps the blood all the way throughout the body. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to show that that's not really the case. Um, the heart does do a little bit of pumping. Um, but there are mechanisms in the body that propel the blood without the need of the heart pumping or any, uh, pressure propulsion pump. Um, there's lots of different ones actually. Um, one of them being the the pressure created by um, the negative pressure created by the lungs um, and breathing. Another is uh, just the movement of muscles and the the um, one way valves of the veins that prevent blood flow from coming back through the veins. But then the main one, uh, the one that I think is most responsible for the movement of blood, is the the formation of what's called fourth phase water on the lining of the arteries. Um, and this fourth phase water, when it forms in a way that it forms. Um, creates an energy gradient that actually propels blood um, on its own um, because blood is half water and this is what water does. Um, so that's a very like brief overview of that. But um, but when we look at that kind of thing and we and we kind of take that information and accept that the heart is not the main mover of the blood, it's not this pressure propulsion pump, it helps us understand how what's happening a heart failure when it's assumed that the heart is not pumping like it's supposed to but you have to kind of reconfigure your question and say, well, what if the heart was not supposed to be pumping that blood that way in the first place? Uh, and it kind of helps us understand how the heart could um, develop heart failure uh, one way that it could anyways. Um, because if, uh, if those mechanisms I just talked about are not functioning properly, the heart is forced to do more pumping than it's designed to. Um, and, uh, and that can lead to uh, stress on the heart. Um, and then the other reason the heart is where it is is because it it uh, it divides the um, the the veins in the arteries, um, and so if we were to go and you know go for a run, um, our tissues would demand more blood, and so all the blood would be kind of shunted toward the arterial side of things, delivering it to the tissues. And if the heart wasn't there to actually stop the flow of blood from the veins then all the blood would actually go to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse and the pressure in the system would not be maintained and we would die. Um, so 
Um, one reason the heart is there is that it's 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 actually stopping the flow of blood when it's under like um, when you're doing like a state of exercise or increased blood flow, so that we maintain pressure in the system because otherwise things would be bad. So it's kind of like sense? a governor almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so and there's there's a whole book on this by a doctor named Branko first, and uh, he um, uh, it's called the heart and circulation, and it reads like a. 200 page research article. So if that's not your type of reading, it could be hard to get through, but um, there's, and in his whole book is just filled with all this um, science and research that's showing that it, it doesn't quite make sense. Um, or it's, it's kind of impossible to think that the heart could forcefully pump the blood. Like we think it does day in and day out for our whole life. Um, uh, it just doesn't quite um, make sense. That whole equation. So interesting stuff. So that's, one thing, and then I go into can we dive into that a little bit? Atherosclerosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. You, you get so many um, things coming at me. I want to make sure I don't, I don't forget anything. <laughs> um, all right. So yeah, yeah, for sure. As far as the heart's concerned, I mean, the heart. We've looked at that as I mean, we've viewed that as a pump since like like elementary school. They're always telling you, you know, the heart is the pump. Uh, yeah, so that's what forces mm-hmm. the blood through your body. So I would imagine. I mean, I remember you talking on the last podcast about the relationship between you know, the blood and the water and how that's, that relationship creates the movement and the flow. Um, but when you, like when, when I'm assuming you've probably been met with a lot of criticism with regard to stating that the primary objective of the heart is not to pump. So that's probably your biggest criticism, uh, to date, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of a hard concept for people to, to wrap their heads around because the heart is contracting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so people think, yes, it is pumping and and I don't deny that it does do a little bit of pumping, but no more than would be enough to just kind of get the blood out of the ventricle into the arteries again, you know, it's about that much. And so, and people often ask me, say, they say, well, what about the pulse? You know, like if the, if the blood wasn't, um, or if the heart wasn't pumping that vigorously, then why do we feel our pulse down in our uh, ankle? You know, how can we, how can we feel that? And so my answer to that is, um, and we'll go back to, I think what the roles of the heart really are. But, um, my answer to that is, have you ever been in a, a room that has, uh, two doors or there's a door and there's like some blinds on the opposite wall or something. And the door is, uh, w- like one of the doors is closed and the other one's kind of slightly open and someone opens that closed door and then the other one slams shut, mm-hmm. Yep. you know, cause the, the pressure in the room changed because the, the pressure that was greater um, outside that, that closed door and that the pressure came into the room and it closed the other door. Um, and the same kind of thing um, I believe is happening uh, in the heart. Every time the valves open, you know, we went from a high pressure area into a, a lower pressure area and that pressure flows in there and it sends that pulse. Like, just like it did through that whole room. You know, it could be a super long hallway and the same thing would happen at the end of that hallway, you know, um, and that's the pulse. That's what we feel. So in, in a way, you know, the pulse is created by the heart, um, but not because of the forceful pumping of the arteries, because of the, the buildup of pressure and the opening and closing of valves. Um, is the, that's my explanation for what the pulse is. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So when it comes to like studying the human body from like a neurological standpoint, there's, there's, we don't even know what we don't know because there's just so many things that we don't even know how to test for. Whereas I think... With, with this, with the functionality of the heart, I feel like that's so much more mechanical. So have there not been like 
models made to test this and, and really kind of break it down or is this just next level? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's definitely been some older, I mean, and, and more modern studies too, but there's one older study that I can think of in particular um, that I talked about in the book by this guy named E.H. Uh, e. Weber. Mm-hmm. And he, he tried to design a system like our cardiovascular system. Um, and he, he did so with, um, you know, just like this, this looped system, you know, this donut looking loop. And he put a, you know, pressure propulsion pump in the middle of the system at one point on the loop. And he, and then he put a, um, kind of a, uh, a sponge at the exact opposite side of the loop, um, which was mimicking the capillaries because when the blood goes into the capillaries, it's kind of like this, it's just kind of swishing around, you know, it's not like it's in a tube particularly. So, um, he designed a system that he, he thought was, you know, best modeled the cardiovascular system. And then he tried to, um, pump a fluid, um, with the viscosity of blood, um, from, from that pressure propulsion pump and he tried to pump it around in this tube. And no matter what he did, he could not get the side, um, you know, between, uh, like one got from the pressure propulsion pump to the sponge, he could not get the side after the sponge back going back up to the, um, pressure propulsion pump to maintain pressure, no matter what he did, no matter how much force he put from that pressure propulsion pump, which was way more force than, um, the heart can create, he could not maintain the pressure in this system. Um, and so it shows that if we think of this heart as a pressure propulsion pump, that that's kind of flawed because we cannot recreate that model. Um, or at least he couldn't, you know, this one scientist could not, and he spent like most of his life trying to do this. Um, so I, I think that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm assuming it would be just an unrealistic model to try and recreate the entire human body with the relationship between right. the cells and vessels. So it would almost be, I mean, it'd almost be similar similar to the brain and the fact that it would be a very hard model to replicate in a mechanical function. Definitely. And so like that, does, that's not like the only evidence that I would, I would say, or I don't back my, my conclusion based on just that, like one study, Oh, this guy couldn't recreate the model for it can't be. Um, you know, the, the reason I come to these conclusions is because I do have an alternate uh, explanation for what would move the blood, you know, what would create the motion of blood um, without a pumping or a pressure propulsion type heart. Um, so it's like those combination of things that that allow me to accept or, or I guess um, conclude that the heart's not moving the blood. And so um, that that mechanism is the formation of this fourth phase water on the lining of arteries. And I don't know if, if, um, the last time I was on, uh, this podcast, if I, if I knew this information yet, but there is a researcher at the university of Washington. Um, uh, he's, he's in, he works in the lab with Gerald Pollock who talks about fourth phase water and has written the book about fourth phase water, but he's one of the researchers in his lab. He's a graduate student and he's actually proven that fourth phase water does form in the arteries of, um, chick embryos and that it does propel the blood. And even when they stop the heart of the tripping chicken embryo, they euthanize it, the heart or the blood continues to flow um, and based on these mechanisms. Um, so again, that's not on a human, but we do know that in an animal very similar, um, that has a you know vascular system similar to ours, um, that that does happen, which is pretty um, striking, I think. 
Yeah, totally, totally. You, you introduced the fourth phase water on the last podcast, but we didn't dive super deep into the the mechanism there. So can you kind of touch on that for the listeners? Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, I guess um, water has unique properties in that it can it can um, it can hold energy. Um, if you know the right type of energy is applied to it, it can it can hold energy, and when it is energized enough, in and it's next to what um, we call a hydrophilic surface, a water loving surface, um, then it can actually start to structure itself in a very different way because um, we're taught that you know water is solid, liquid, or gas, um, but this is kind of in between solid and liquid, and it's more like a gel, and so. Um, what happens is, um, you know, water is H2O. Um, and so one of the oxygen and one of the hydrogens cleaves off one of the other hydrogens. Um, and those oxygens and, and hydrogens bind with other oxygens and hydrogens, and they make kind of like this hexagonal shape. And then more of those hexagonal shapes are, are latched up together. And it makes kind of like this, um, this lattice plane, you know, um, I think of like, uh, almost like those um, uh, those those fences you see where it's like these um, crossed, you know, white pieces of wood, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like this big planar fence. I kind of think of that, except it's hexagonal shapes. And those things, um, those those planar um, or those planes uh, line up next to the artery and any hydrophilic surface. So this happens um, in many places in nature. And Dr. Pollock's book, The Fourth Phase of Water, is um, kind of eye-opening and and how you see things that happen around you in nature. And it's interesting. Um, but it happens on the lining of our arteries. And when this happens, because the oxygen and hydrogen or water has cleaved off one hydrogen, you're left with an oxygen and hydrogen. And those team up with other oxygens and hydrogens because the oxygen is such a bigger molecule um, and it's negative. Um, then this, this fourth phase structured water area on the lining of the artery is has a net negative charge. Um, and because of that, and because the other hydrogens that were there are into the bloodstream now, um, then the bloodstream has this net negative or net positive charge. And that creates this energy gradient that drives blood flow. And um, the, the research originally started when they put like a, what they call a nafion tube, which is a hydrophilic surface into water that has been energized. They put it in the, they just put it into a tub of it and the water just started to flow without any force acting on it. Um, and it would continue to flow as long as they applied energy to the water. Um, and energy um, came in many forms, but the most um, the most absorbed by water was infrared light um, at the 3,000 nanometer wavelength. Um, so, and so just, just yeah. to make sure I'm following you, basically that energy could be anything that's going to excite the particles within the, the water. And then because of that surface tension, it's going to create movement somewhere in that path, correct? Yeah. So because of the energy gradient that's created when when the fourth phase water is formed on the lining of the artery, that creates movement. Um, it, well, it really, it moves things that are positively charged that are sitting in this blood solution or water solution that we have because blood is half water. Um and the movement of those things, I think, moves the water, you know, but um, it, it's, it's quite interesting. And so first they did that in the lab with just water. And now this one graduate student has proved that it happens in an animal. Um, and so it's I think it's pretty safe to assume that that's what happens in us, too. 
Um, and then there's other interesting experiments um, that were done back in the, somewhere in the forties, somewhere in the sixties. Um, and these were done in dogs. So sorry for all the dog lovers back out there, but um, they, um, they did a series of experiments. Um, and the, the very last thing that they did was they injected a tracer into the blood of a dog. And when they euthanized the dog, um, no breathing, no heart beating, nothing, the blood, the tracer in the blood continued to move for two hours um, after the dog died. Um, mm. So it went, kept, go, kept going around the body. And eventually that dog has lost like its, its life force um, and, you know, energy is not being applied to it. So the blood stops, you know, um, because it's the, the supply of energy to our bodies that helps build the system. So the blood continues to flow. Now there are, um, this helps us explain one of the roles of the heart and why it does beat, why it does contract, because you can think that, you know, there's, if you think about things this way, the heart acts more like what's called a hydraulic ram. Um, and hydraulic ram is something that, you know, depends on the flow of fluid into it for it to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's kind of hard to explain in, in this setting here, but there's images in my book that help explain it. Um, what, a, what a hydraulic, I didn't know what it was either when I first read it. So there's also good YouTube videos that kind of explain how a hydraulic ram works, um, but it's flow dependent. Um, so the more um, fluid that flows into a hydraulic ram, the more it's going to, um, the more output it's going to have, right? Um, and then you slow the flow and the less output it's going to have. And there's studies that have shown that um, no matter how much they artificially increase the um, um, heartbeat um, in different um lab animals and things that could not increase the cardiac output. The only thing that would increase in cardiac output was blood flow itself, um, which kind of throws a kick into this whole idea that the heart is forcefully pumping blood. And that if you try and pump faster, it's going to pump more, you know? Well, it's, it's um, kind of interesting. Like I, when you say hydraulic ram, I think, uh, I think of the front end loader on my tractor and no matter <laughs> how much, you know, I rev that engine up, if, if it's low on hydraulic fluid, that bucket's not going to raise anymore. So that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so again, it depends on, you know, um, how hydrated we are, you know, as, as our blood, do we have enough blood in there? Right. Um, but also how fast the blood is moving and coming through and, and what, what determines how, um, fast the blood is moving is tissue demand. So if the, the tissues are demanding more fluid, your, your body is going to increase, um, the delivery to that tissue. And that's what drives or creates more blood flow. Um, and so, and so the reason that the heart is pumping is because another thing that Dr. Pollock in his lab, who, you know, wrote the fourth phase water book, one thing that he found was that vortexing or swirling water in the presence of oxygen will also energize it so that it can better structure next to hydrophilic surfaces. And so if you look at the orientation of the heart and the musculature of the heart, it is oriented in a spiral like pattern. And if you watch it contract, um, it, it spirals, it swirls, um, and it, it vortexes the blood, um, as it comes through. And so, and then people say, well, where's the oxygen? Well, the oxygen's in the blood and it's attached to hemoglobin, you know, and, and I think it's no coincidence that, you know, the, the, um, you know, when the, when the blood comes back to the heart, it has oxygen in it. It's less oxygenated than it was when it left the lungs, but it has still has oxygen in it. And then it goes to the lungs and then it goes back to the heart um, to go into the left ventricle or atrium ventricle. And uh, it's spiraled again, it's vortexed again. 
Um, and so to me, that makes a ton of sense that the heart is um, vortexing the blood in the presence of oxygen because the blood has oxygen in it. And that's energizing the water in the blood, making it more um, able to form fourth phase water and keep the blood moving. So in a way, the heart is responsible for the movement of blood, just not in the way that we thought. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. So I feel like this this really emphasizes the importance of uh, being well hydrated. I mean, most people, when they think of being dehydrated, they don't think about it in the same light of their heart not working properly. Right, exactly. Um, and, and it also, to me, emphasizes the importance of sunlight um, because that's where, that's the original source of infrared light, you know, uh, and that's one of the reasons sunlight is so good for us. People think about vitamin D, which is, you know, great for us, which we get from like um, the UV light, uh, but the infrared light is also very important because of what it does for these mechanisms in your body. So the other thing is, is that if people are having a hard time, you know, grasping that, that this fourth phase water can form in the line of an artery, um, it, keep in mind that it, it's like a gel. And if I was to, you know, you know, pinch the, the flesh of my forearm um, and I'm, you know, 70, 75% water, like we're all told, you know, I don't feel like a waterbed. Um, I feel like a gel, right? Like I can push onto that and it responds just like jello. It kind of bounces back. That's because all the water in your cells are, is also supposed to be structured into this gel-like state. Um, and, and maintaining that is also a very good idea um, for our bodies. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, totally, totally. And I'm assuming, yeah. you know, like so, if you're overhydrated, your, your body's, you know, kidney's going to kick in, everything's going to work, and you're going to be able to excrete that. But if you're underhydrated, if you're dehydrated, then there's not really any mechanical proxy by the body to just be able to correct course without an input being more water right and so if you think about it too like if the um if the if the heart is a hydraulic ram and it's dependent on flow and it works on it works better when there's constant you know regular um, flow into the heart if there's less flow um and the body is trying to get blood move blood and the heart is because when the heart valves open, the blood just kind of flows in. It's not like it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of sucked in a little bit because there's a negative pressure, but it's all, it's ready to flow in because of the self flow mechanism. But if there's less flow and things aren't, you know, the fourth phase water's forming, not forming like it's supposed to, or you're dehydrated or something like that, um, then the heart is having to work more like a pump, right? And it's mm -hmm. having to, um, or a pressure propulsion pump, I should say. Um, where and, and when the muscles contract, they're having to create more pressure to get that blood out of there because it's not wanting to flow on its own, right? Um, and so, to me, that that tells me more about what can can cause um, heart failure over time because the fluid's not moving like it's supposed to, and then the heart is forced to do more work, um, more pumping than it's designed to do, and we can get expansion of the heart walls, um, which you know is the classic. Um, um, heart failure, congestive heart failure kind of thing that the, the heart kind of swells up like a basketball rather than being shaped like a football at one end. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then we can get, you know, back up in our lungs, we can get swelling in our feet because the fluid is just not moving in our body. Um, not because the heart's not pumping like it's supposed to, because it was never really designed to do all the pumping in the first place, but because the mechanisms in our body that create the, the flow of fluid, whether it's lymphatic fluid or blood or whatever, are not working properly. And what what are some of those 
primary mechanisms? So you got your your water level. Um, I'm assuming electrolytes would be one of those. But like, what are some some good just case by case things that people want to make sure they're they're focusing on? Well, you want to be making sure that you're building fourth phase water. You're energizing the water in your body, and that is infrared light exposure. Um, that is, um, uh, you know, the vortexing of why I mean, people can drink structured water or energized water, you know, there's, you know, energizing water devices or structuring water devices, um, but also eating the freshest food possible because, um, the water in our food, whether it's an animal food or plant food is, is structured just like it is in us. And so eating that, um, eating the freshest food possible, because if you know, you cut something, um, you know, off a plant and ship it halfway around the world, it's probably not going to be too energized by the time it gets to you. Um, but you know, if you eat more local, uh, then you're going to get, um, more energized forms of water from the food you eat. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, those things, um, uh, I mean, sunlight, I think is huge. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I think those things are stay hydrated sunlight, um, or infrared light in general, uh, eat fresh food, that kind of stuff. I would imagine that when like you go to the doctor and they put you on like a blood thinner or something like that, that's totally throwing a wrench in this natural phenomena. Uh, it could be. Um, it, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I mean, if the blood was thinner, it may move easier. Um, but that is all provided that the fourth phase water is forming properly on the lining of an artery. And so an interesting question that I have that, nobody's really looked at because I asked the researchers in the lab at university of Washington. They said, nobody's looked at it yet is whether or not, um, fourth phase water can form on the lining of an artery when there's atherosclerosis. Um, and nobody knows the answer. I, I would assume that it's, it's a no because atherosclerosis is, is made up of, of, um, a large amount of, of, uh, fatty tissue mm -hmm. and fat is a hydrophobic, um, uh, surface, right? So if you drop, you know, a water or a, a fat droplet of like olive oil or something into water, it, you know, pulls up and it stays to itself, right? Um, it doesn't mix with the water. So it's hydrophobic. And so since it's hydrophobic and fourth phase water really only structures itself next to hydrophilic surfaces, I would assume that it, it doesn't form. And so if it's not forming, that explains the association we see between um, formation of atherosclerosis and development of heart failure, because if the body can't form that fourth phase water, they can't propel the blood, then the heart is under more stress, stress and strain. And then eventually you know, down the line, the more atherosclerosis we get, the more heart failure will develop. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So we've basically been pointing the finger at the wrong culprit the whole time when it guard, with regards to what the, what the underlying issue is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that kind of takes me to the next thing is that um, the one, the other thing that like this, this fourth phase water that line that can build itself on the lining of an artery. Yes, it helps propel blood, but the other thing it does. So fourth phase water has a few different names. It's called structured water. It's called fourth phase water. It's also called exclusion zone water. And that is because um, when it forms um, the way that it forms um, it excludes everything that's not it. So basically very, very few little things um, can penetrate it. Um, so that means that if it's formed on the lining of our artery, it's also a form of protection for the lining of our artery. Um, and if we have adequate amounts of this, um, this structured water on there, then it can, it can help prevent, say, atherosclerosis. But if we 
um, have a lot of things in our blood that can kind of break down that fourth phase water, which we can talk about, um, then then those things that also break down the fourth phase water are allowed to access the lining of the artery and they break that down too. And then we get damage and then we get atherosclerosis. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. So what are some primary contributors to that? So this, we go into um, the whole um, concept of inflammation and oxidative stress. So remember that the when the fourth phase water forms in the lining of the artery, um, it has a very negative charge. Uh, and so there's lots of electrons there to donate to things that are, that would want an electron, like a free radical. Okay. So when we talk about oxidative stress, there are things in our body that we can either be exposed to in our environment. Um, but our body also makes free radicals that create oxidative stress itself just by the process of, you know, metabolism, it makes free radicals and that's supposed to happen. And they're, they're signaling molecules that, that, um, signal a lot of different things in our body. So they're useful, but if they become too much, then they can start to cause damage to things. Um, and so free radicals can damage the fourth phase water and then the lining of the artery, but also things like heavy metals exposure, like mercury and lead and aluminum and things like that. Um, I'm assuming a lot of the, uh, like a lot of the heavily processed seed oils and whatnot, for instance, would also be a pretty massive culprit. Right. Yes. So those are definitely, have definitely been linked to oxidative stress, higher levels of oxidative stress because they're so easily oxidized. Um, those oils, um, those fats, because they're not very stable. Uh, and so even, you know, in the process of making them, they can become oxidized, but then in the process of them being exposed to light before we consume them or, or heat before we consume them, um, can damage them. And then we consume them and that's just, uh, lots of excess oxidative stress, but also, um, endotoxemia, which is the presence of gram negative bacteria in your bloodstream, which is not supposed to be there, which can happen when we get things like leaky gut and the bacteria from the gut leaks into the bloodstream or, we have poor dental health, um, that can, that can happen there. Um, but also things like BPA, uh, has been shown to, uh, um, uh, to cause oxidative stress. And I, I talk about a lot of studies in the book that link all these things and it's lots of them are associational studies. So we can't really prove causation, but it's just interesting to see the associations, you know, between these studies where they like pumped high amounts of BPA into, into rats and they all develop atherosclerosis, you know? Um, same thing with, with heavy metals, people who had, um, you know, tested higher for heavy metals always had higher amounts of atherosclerosis. So it's just, it's interesting to see those things. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of different, you know, things that can create this situation of oxidative stress that breaks down fourth phase water and then damages the lining of the arteries. And then the body responds to that, um, by trying to repair it with, with different minerals and different, um, and cholesterol and things like that. And we get atherosclerosis. Um, which can be problematic down the road. I feel like last time we talked, we, we kind of touched on some of the the lesser known inflammatory um, and hormonal effects of just some of the common household items that people use every single day don't even think twice about. But like stuff like the shampoo you use, the, the stuff on your, you know, the conditioners and detergents for your clothes, like all of this can be absorbed by your skin and have an oxidative effect, correct? Correct. Yeah. So we got to be conscious of all those things, any cosmetic, any cleaning product, like um, we're just, you know, we're pretty much bathed in chemicals all day long if we're not careful. And most of those toxins are, are water soluble. So your body can get rid of them pretty, pretty easily. But if they're, you know, constantly there every day getting exposed to them, then your body's always dealing with them. Um, and they're always there. And that's contributing to your oxidative stress and your inflammation. 
So what are some some just solid takeaways that people, I mean, you know, obviously getting out in the sun, getting some some red lights, um, you know, staying hydrated, make sure their nutrition is good and, and not coming from heavily processed high vegetable oil sources. But what are, what are some, some lesser known, uh, you know, hacks, so to speak, that, that someone that's not as deep into the, you know, biohacking space may be familiar with? Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I think the number one thing people can do um, is uh, is change their diet, you know, to a whole foods diet, uh, you know, a majority whole foods diet. I mean, that's that's one of the easiest things that everyone can do, and it's a message you get a lot of times. It's the, it's like the bottom line thing for all of us. But when we're talking about um, the the three imbalances that I think drive heart disease are being um, having poor metabolic health or poor metabolic flexibility or not being metabolically flexible. Um, oxidative stress and inflammation, like we just talked about, and then imbalances in our autonomic nervous system. And in the book, uh, on my chapter on diet, I link or I show how um, all three of those things um, can be, um, you know, can be can be made imbalances in the body, or they can be made balanced through diet. Um, it's not the only way we should do those, but that is the number one thing, and that's something that that's something that people can control too, because you know, lots of these things that I talk about in the book are things that we can't always control. Things like stress and things like um, the amount of toxins we're exposed to, like we can't control all the air we breathe and all this stuff, you know? Um, and so, but diet is something that you can control every single day because you choose what you're going to put in your mouth every single day. And so if that's the one variable you can have total control of, that's probably the most important thing to focus on, especially when we're going to have such an impact on all three of the imbalances that I think drive heart disease and and pretty much all disease. Could not agree more. So I would imagine that it's incredibly frustrating to know the things that you know and see this play out in all the studies, but it not really gain momentum in the mainstream, you know, health and medical world. Like what's it going to take for for mainstream medicine to open their eyes to this being the culprit and not everything else they point their finger at in the past? Um, I think it'll take uh, demand from, from people, demand from Western medicine's customers, you know? Um, that, that's, I think, the only thing that can really change uh, a company's uh, or an industry's product. And so that's why I feel it's super important that I get the information out there because I do think that there are um, there are better uh, approaches to preventing this condition. Um, now, if someone has heart disease, they should definitely be under the care of a cardiologist, but they should be equipped with this information and be able to take it to that person um, and and discuss it with them. And so, unfortunately, I think one of the um, the 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 worst issues we have is the shutdown of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that, like, I don't think my book has all the answers. And I don't think that it, some of us probably even wrong. I don't even know. But it's information that I feel is important. And I hope that, again, that it inspires an open conversation. Um, I'm not putting it out there to say, you know, Western medicine's wrong. I'm right. I'm putting it out there so that we can start to have open discussion because that's what's going to move us forward and oftentimes what i see um is is the shutdown of conversation whether it's you know and i've experienced this in the past with my own medical journey if i questioned what a doctor told me they would just shut me down and the conversation was over you know and that shouldn't be 
um, the approach, you know, it should be that, that the doctor is there to, to help the patient and, and learn from the patient. I feel I've learned more from my patients than I have any textbook or class or anything. And, and, um, and I, I hope that people will use this information and use it to, to, um, get doctors and, um, and, uh, any type of medical practitioner, uh, to, to start the conversation, to have it, you know, and say, Hey, look at this research, you know, can't really deny this. Doesn't mean that it's, it, you should shift your whole thinking or whatever, but maybe we should look at this and see, um, what, what this has and what's, what's going on here, you know? Well, it's amazing how willing we are to shut the conversation down on ourselves. Like so many people, you know, mm. considered a death sentence when their parents or their grandparents, you know, died from heart complications. They just assume that it's destined to happen to them too. Whereas the body is is pretty freaking resilient. Like last time you and I talked, you were sharing how there's been studies of how basically arteries and major blood vessels have bypassed their traditional route to to make way for more blood flow to keep an organism alive. I mean, there, there's like our body wants to survive and thrive. So if people made a made an effort to have an intervention, improve their diet, improve their lifestyle, I mean, they could have a pretty pretty radical corrective course change, and their body would be able to adapt and adjust and add exponential more quality of life to their life. Yeah. So it's it's you know, it's about the environment, not necessarily the genes. So yes, you may have those genes that predispose you to heart disease. But if you change your environment, that will influence those genes. And that has been proven time and time again um, in, in lives across the country, um, most notably. And I think uh, first with Bruce Lipton, um, you, know, you, you can influence the expression of your genes um, by changing your environment. So, again, the, you know, change as much of your environment as you can. But the thing I know that everyone can change starting tomorrow is, is what they put in their mouth and they have complete control over that. So just out of curiosity, what does a typical day of, of eating look like for you, for instance? I'm assuming you're not going to get McDonald's Big Macs every day knowing what you know. No, no, yeah. So um, until very recently, I was I was doing a carnivore diet, um, kind of experimenting with that. And I, and I saw benefit from that. I really did as far as digestive health, which has always been an issue with me. Um, first time in my life, I never had um, or I had no digestive issues. Um, and as far as allergies and information, but recently I've started adding back, um, more plant foods. Um, and so, and I'm doing fine with that. There's no real adverse event or reactions or anything. Um, so I usually eat two meals a day. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, on days where I work a full day, which is three days a week, I definitely intermittent fast. So I'll eat my first meal at, at lunch and it's, and it's usually, um, a high amount of animal foods, whether it's, you know, liver or sardines or chicken or, um, or red meat or, um, eggs, things like that. And then, uh, some vegetables, you know, some low, uh, low carb vegetables, um, things like, you know, asparagus or, um, Christopher specials, things like that. And, I, and my body seems to be doing well with them, uh, since I added them back, I was worried that my digestive stuff would come back, but I think two years on a carnivore diet really did wonders for my gut lining. Um, and, uh, and then I'll eat again, uh, when I get home, um, around seven or so, and, uh, it's more of the same, you know, it's, it's higher animal foods, um, and then, uh, some, some plant foods. And I even have like, um, some sweet potato, sweet potato every now and then, um, which I follow very low carb because it's way easier to do as I'm type one diabetic. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, it just stick to whole foods. 
Um, I tell people cause you know, I work with people nutritionally and they, uh, they come in and they're just like, they're overwhelmed with what I just told them, you know, and I haven't watched this little video that I did, I recorded and they're overwhelmed with it. And I said, okay, let's start the basics here. Um, I want you to do three things. I want you to go home and get rid of every, every vegetable oil you have in your house. And I teach them how to look for that and packaged foods and things like that. Um, all, you know, grains, because all grains are processed. I usually say processed grains, but all grains are processed and, and sugars, um, and especially processed sugars, like high fructose corn syrup and just white sugar, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I tell them that when they go through their house and they eliminate those things, they're not going to have any processed food left in their house for the most part. Um, and, uh, and so then I think everything else that's left is what you should go to the store and buy more of. And if there's nothing left, then you need a whole new, you know, um, uh, approach to food. But, but yeah, um, that's, that's what I eat. It's, it's very high animal foods. I think that is most nutrient dense, um, easily attainable, uh, uh, as far as nutrients, um, for our body. And, uh, and that's what I'm doing. So with you being carnivore for as long as you have, I mean, one, one of the main reasons there's been so much momentum in the carnivore space is due to the research indicating that, you know, plants can be very oxidative, um, mm-hmm. you know, all the, uh, anti-nutrients and whatnot in many of the different plants. Do you worry with that being a, a significant enough cause of inflammation and oxidative stress that it could lead to the arthrosclerosis that you've talked about? Or is that such a minuscule amount that it wouldn't really register? Yeah, I think not on its own. I think that there may be a certain small percentage of people that those plant toxins are, are that problematic to them that it could cause atherosclerosis. But I think those are the same people that are so reactive to plant toxins that it's causing depression or causing autoimmune disease. Um, and, but there's, you know, I think the vast majority of people, um, you know, the plant toxins, you know, if we look at, you know, how biosimilar we are, that they, they're probably causing an issue, but I don't know if it's enough of an issue to cause atherosclerosis. But if we take that in context with everything else that could potentially contribute to atherosclerosis, then those things are just another, um, you know, it's another thing to worry about, you know, and, and in conjunction, all those things together can be contributing. So it, it, it's really hard to say, you know, there's no really absolutes and things, but, you know, they have found oxalates deposited in atherosclerosis. Is that because they caused them or is that because they were just bystanders and they got deposited there? Like, I, I don't know. Um, but I know that a lot of plant toxins can be very inflammatory. And I know that when I eliminated plants altogether, I saw drops in inflammation that I had uh, previously never seen before. Um, and I'm, you know, monitoring things to see if that comes back over time, you know, adding, adding vegetables back in. Um, but it's hard to say for sure that I don't think we have evidence that uh, they can directly cause it um, alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming the same, same kind of uh, modality is, is probably true with regard to consuming animals that have been fed a diet like pigs and chickens for instance monogastric animals that have been you know fed a diet high in uh, you know vegetable oils and things of that nature like it's it's certainly not optimal but that may not alone be the contributing factor yeah exactly i think that you know we have to look at our our entire environment we can't just it's just like saying taking a lipid panel and saying oh you have high ldl you're going to have heart disease like we just can't look at things that myopically um, that, I mean, the body is a very complex biological ecosystem that's changing and there's so many different influences on it. And to say that one thing, uh, directly causes this other thing, 
to happen, um, I think is short-sighted and it's, it's rarely the case. Sometimes it is, um, you know, like, you know, we get radiation poisoning. That's probably what caused mm-hmm. your issues, you know? Um, but, uh, but when all these, we look at all the environments and all the little things we're exposed to, it, it's hard to pinpoint one thing and say that it was the cause of one thing in research or in life. Totally. While I got you here, I want to ask you another question with regard to, you know, the, the cholesterol conundrum, uh, you know, it's, it's oftentimes in the keto low carb space that people don't, you know, lose sleep over their cholesterol numbers being a little bit out of whack or not in line with what a lot of mainstream doctors would like to see. Um, mm-hmm. and there, there's good reason to suggest that it's not as big an issue as they, they would like it, especially if all the other markers are, are solid, for instance, you know, HDL being, uh, up there and, and trigs being really low, but is there like a, a, a point or tipping point, so to speak, in which LDL numbers are so high that it is cause for concern in your opinion, based off of how you're viewing this entire relationship, uh, between, you know, cholesterol, blood, the heart and, and all that involves. Um, I, I don't know. And I, I think that my main focus is again, not the LDL number, regardless of how high this, I know there is this percentage of people that, you know, Dave Feldman is called lean mass hyper responders where they can, can go really high. Um, um, but in the context of low inflammation, I'm not too worried about that, you know, but you, again, you have to look at everything in, in context. You have to look at someone's, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I went to the doctor when I was younger and everything. And all they took was a lipid panel, a chem screen and a, um, and a CBC. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I would, looking back, I would want to know way more than that, um, as far as inflammation goes before I decided if anything on those three tests, those three basic panels was problematic to that person. Um, because everything is, is different when you're looking at it in the context of inflammation. So you want to see C-reactive protein. You want to see, you know, maybe GGT or markers of oxidative stress. You want to see, um, you know, uh, different enzymes like myeloperoxidase or LP little a or oxidized LDL, the, the ApoB to ApoA1 ratio, there's all these different things you could test to further assess whether that high LDL is an issue, you know? Um, and so people are scared of cholesterol. And I just think that it's that one single number is overemphasized and you have to look at it in the context of, of an entire state of a human's body, even though I go through a little, like a little soapbox about blood work too on, in, in my book and, and how, I think that trying to assess whether you're healthy or not with blood work is um, uh, is a little short-sighted. Um, I, I think that you know it, it's impossible to tell at this one moment in time when I took some blood from somebody and the numbers that I got are are an indication of whether this person's healthy or not. Because we see blood work in people that looks terrible and they feel fine, and we see people uh, with blood work that looks um, great and they feel terrible. You know, and and so it is really useful for seeing if there's things that are really wrong, um, and if you need like intervention now, you know, um, kind of like emergency medicine. But I think to use blood work to tell you if you're healthy, or to solely use blood work to tell you if you're healthy, is is a little short sighted, and and to and to further that down and reduce it down to one number to tell you if you're healthy, like LDL, um, is is very short sighted, um, and we have to look at not just a whole panel of blood work, but the person's whole environment. And, and, uh, and yeah, people can get really 
reductionist in those things. And that, unfortunately that creates fear in people and fear shuts down their decision-making. Um, and then they can't even think about what to do with their health, you know, because they're so scared about that number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I want people to realize that you have to step back, look at everything from bird's eye view and, you know, don't be scared of it. Um, just, uh, assess your situation and, and make changes that you can, you know? Hundred percent agree. I mean, the the more we talk, it's the more it's obvious that it's just like you can't really deal in absolutes with anything in life. And same is true yeah. with with your health. I mean, and to take that one step further, and make this full circle. I mean, you look at you look at the heart, you look at the organs, you look at the muscles in our body. It would make sense that that's not an absolute either. It's not just the pump for the entire you know blood flow. Maybe there's a lot more to it than that. Exactly. Yeah. And people want things to be very black and white because it's easy to say it's this way, not that way. But that's very rarely the case when we're talking about um, nature, you know, and we are nature. We were created by nature or whatever you believe, you know, we're, we're, we're a natural thing. And, um, and uh, it's very hard for people to kind of grasp that, um, that there may not be an answer uh, and that we need to, we need to be okay with there not necessarily being an answer. We have all this information that can help guide us into how to live but there may not be an absolute answer. We may never know exactly how atherosclerosis forms or exactly why heart attacks happen. Um, you know, I, I believe my theories out there, but we, we very well may never know. Maybe we're not meant to know. Maybe, maybe, but I think, you know, being curious, being passionate about it and diving in and, you know, coming up with your own theories, your own research, your own, uh, you know, take on things is, is how we grow and develop as a, as a human race. So I, I salute you for writing the book and putting in the work, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was it was uh it was fun, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. I have no doubt. Um so where can people go to to get it? I'm pretty sure this will have gone live by the time it's live. Um so where where will be the location? Um yeah, so it's I don't have a publisher, I'm just um um self publishing on Amazon. So Amazon will be pretty much the place people can get it. Um it'll be in paperback and ebook. And then if it does well, then maybe I'll I'll do audiobook as as well. Um but uh but yeah, Amazon. Well, definitely, definitely do the audiobook, man. I feel like so many people use that as their main medium for consuming content. So, shoot, I'd listen to it. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I don't want to. I, I will warn people though, and one thing I, I fear is that um, in audiobook format, you're not going to get the images. And I think that for certain parts of understanding, you know, the, the ideas, those are important. Um, but you know, an audiobook is definitely in the in the plans if the book does well. Um, but it, I do think it would take away from a uh, full understanding of everything. That makes sense. What's what's the title? It's called Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. Perfect, perfect. I'll make sure to link out to that. Um, and what what is your website? Man, go ahead and throw that out there too so people can find you. Yeah, resourceyourhealth.com uh, is where I do my coaching and my blogs there and um, and yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, Stephen, like I said at the beginning, man, every time I talk to you, I come out just much, much brighter for the conversation. So (laughs) thanks again for enlightening me on so many things. I'm super excited to read the book and just keep doing the work you're doing, brother. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care.